Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. And today, I'm going to do a solo show discussing my thoughts on the 2022 quarterback class. Why this class has been so much fun to scout. What's made it challenging. What it means for the league. And what it means for fantasy. Uh, first, I just want to share that I'm in my career arc where I really am in my career with arc with scouting quarterbacks. I mean, kind of where do I stand, or at least if I'm self-evaluating um, where I'm at. If you've become a regular reader, listener, or RSP subscriber in recent years, then you probably know that I've been among the few that hit pretty strongly on Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes, and even back in the past with Russell Wilson when the consensus wasn't nearly as high on them, while also being lower on the likes of guys that people were high on, like Mitchell Trubisky, Baker Mayfield, Drew Locke, and Paxton Lynch. Um, These hits and timely cautions were rooted in lessons learned from opportunities that I discovered to improve my evaluation process, as well as my understanding of the position. And some of the most valuable lessons came from missing on players. Guys like Dak Prescott, Blaine Gabbert, Bruce Gridkowski, John Beck. These were players I missed on. Missed on badly. Um, With Prescott, I learned that I needed to scout more games or at least have a more granular set of criteria with the games that I scouted so there weren't as many gray areas in my evaluation where a score for a category could go either way. If you have enough of these gray areas with your with your evaluation process, it can be the difference between one to two tiers in your final score. So you could have a player like Prescott, if you were on the other side of the gray area with him, he could have been a top three option. If you're on the side that I was on, he was more like seventh or eighth on my board. And that was really the difference with him is he there was too much gray area in my evaluation criteria. With Gabbert, um, and also I'd probably add the unfortunate demise of a once-promising player in Trent Edwards, the biggest thing I learned with those two is how a player responds to pressure can change as their career unfolds. What might have been promising early on with them in college or even early in their pro career in Edwards' case might not be remain that way if punishment's too frequent. Punishment can really change the outlook of a player. Think David Carr. I mean, he was a good example of that. Um, you know, so another one would be Gradkowski. Gradkowski was a player who I had rated pretty highly on my board. I had him rated above Matt Leinart, actually, which was, you know, a good call in essence. And he did have a nice career as a reserve and beat some good teams as a reserve. And, you know, he led as a rookie, he led the NFL in preseason quarterback rating and was really strong and got the start early in his career with John Gruden. But what we learned with Gradkowski is that if you don't have that baseline of arm strength that teams expect from a starter, that velocity needed to throw the ball with a low trajectory at certain distances that would stretch the defense both horizontally and vertically. You know, I'm talking like deep outs, the hitting that honey hole and cover, excuse me, in cover two, um, you know, throwing the deep comeback, 
plays like that. Um, certain types of go routes opposite field. Gradkowski didn't have that kind of arm. And as a result of that, defenses could force him to try and make those throws and make plays off of it. And see, unless you are a rare talent as a runner and your offense at the same time embeds that running skill into the primary part of its game plan, then you're probably not going to succeed long-term as a starter with limited arm strength. You know, this that's where Lamar Jackson and Deshaun Watson come in is they can throw for distance and they have a strong enough arm to put enough velocity on the ball with a high trajectory, but their low trajectory throws aren't there. So stretching the field horizontally is incumbent upon them running. And that's part of the compensatory factors of their skills that make them stars when they're on the field. Um, you know, with Beck and several other players that I hit and missed on, but I, Beck was probably the beginning of that because it was very early on in my career. I think he's a quarterback coach at this point for um, young players. One of the things I learned with Beck is that I had to learn a lot more about the relationship between game management identifying target opportunities against coverage and close and how quarterbacks close the gap between accurate processing of information and execution and that's a mouthful i know you know game management target opportunities against certain types of cover all types of coverage and that tight gap between accurate processing of information and execution, or maybe what you would say is a tight bond, a bond between accurate processing of information and strong execution. Because see, at this point of my 17 year career as a scout, the the three most valuable facets of quarterback play for me right now are accurate processing, timely execution, and game management. You know, you Arm strength, you got to have a baseline for that. You got to have some baseline athletic ability, um, you know, good footwork. You have to have some technical skills in your game. But these things are low level, raw resource skills. The refined resources where you take the, the physical and the technical skills and put them into something useful are those, you know, are accurate processing, time and execution, and game management. So whenever I mention these factors, it's interesting because media and, and the fantasy community, they'll often interject in the interview and, and, and say the word intangibles as if they're trying to say, I get it, it's intangibles. And, but they use that as a coverall for these three things. This is wrong, okay? This is wrong. If you understand what is favorable there's nothing intangible about this, okay? I'm going to outline some things for you. What you need to understand is that the things I just mentioned, accurate processing, time and execution, and game management, what falls under that are things like knowing what favorable and unfavorable leverage um, with coverage is, understanding the routes that receivers are running, Knowing the basics of good game management based on down and distance field position in the scoreboard. Knowing what are the, the ranges of acceptable, uh, of acceptable physical techniques involved with drops, setups, 
pocket movement and releases. If you can combine these things together, you can tangibly track a quarterback's ability to pro accurately process what's happening and execute in a timely manner. I just mentioned these 10 items that can be tangibly defined and tracked. The problem is, is that people just want to have a coverall term for it. And it's kind of like they use the eyeball test rather than really break it down granularly. Just in the same way that people break down the term vision or use the term vision with running backs, um, decision-making with quarterbacks is the same way. They're really the same thing for both, just expressed in different ways based on their position. Um, but decision-making and vision are both far too vague of a term unless you get really granular with the details. Otherwise, you just wind up with what players, you know, people call, you know, intangibles and the it factor. And in the public space, the it factor isn't defined the way I define it. Listen, I define it factor, and I've written about this many years ago. It's short for integrated technique. That's what I've termed it. You know, think of those 10 things I mentioned just earlier, just a, just a few seconds ago, and how they're all used together to produce, for a quarterback to produce, or for a quarterback to at least set up outcomes on the field for his teammates to produce. You know, it's funny because, you know, I talk about music a lot, and as someone who's getting back into playing, quarterbacking and running back play have a ton of parallels to improvisational music. The difference between the two positions, if I were going to make continue that analogy, is that quarterback's more like playing the piano. You know, with the piano, you can play the melody, you can play the harmony, you can also play rhythms that help establish and maintain the groove, you know, of the song. And at the same time, with the piano, you're reading two different clefs, treble clef and bass clef. You know, as whereas with other instruments, you don't have those potential roles and responsibilities. You know, you're usually playing melody or you're playing a horn part in support, you know, but you're, when you're solo, you're either soloing or playing melody or maybe playing some sort of counterpoint, but you're not playing, you're, you're not as integral part of the harmony and groove on a consistent basis as quarterbacking, you know, as, as piano playing like quarterbacking. So what I've come to learn with this whole it factor, with this improvisational aspect of these positions, is that when you are improvising, whether it's football, acting, or music, you have to have all of these technical and conceptual and theoretical skills to the point that you're not thinking about them you're just playing you're just expressing them but it takes time you're learning a language football is like a language that you're learning all these you know rules and methods of communicating you know to perform well so it's difficult to separate these 10 factors i discussed without 
your pulse on the player's game really just dissolving in front of your eyes. So much of what quarterbacking is about is interrelated, and that link between processing and execution is a different area than just being smart enough. You know, there are a lot of a lot of quarterbacks are smart enough because the NFL is kind of self-selected to pick folks who would otherwise perform well on their SATs based on where they grew up, what kind of income they had, what kind of baseline um, schooling and development and exposure they had, as well as, you know, a baseline level of, of intelligence that I'd say a lot of people from outside certain, you know, certain um, well-developed um, and affluent cultures also have, but also have lacked opportunities and resources to, to really refine that baseline of talent. And see, the thing is, is that the NFL may self-select with that, but what we also have learned and why they've gotten rid of this Wonderlick test that never had any business being a part of scouting is that while high IQ or even above average intelligence and work ethic can be helpful, okay, it's what we see most often with physically capable quarterbacks with intelligence is that they work their way into becoming great students of the game, but there's still a gap for them from becoming great performers on the field. Alex Smith had the physical skills of a top performer. He had the technical skills of a top performer in terms of throwing the ball. He had a high IQ and he worked hard. But when it came down to demanding on-field scenarios at the top level to do what, say, Patrick Mahomes could do, to do what Matthew Stafford can do with good talent around him, you know, and really what he did with lacking talent around him, but people dropping the ball. That's something I've contended for years. Or players like Aaron Rodgers or Josh Allen or Justin Herbert, it looks like. These guys, it's more than just IQ. It's it's the confidence to act on what they process quickly. Sometimes when it's just all intelligence and hard work, you question what's in front of you because you have to do it in the moment. You have to trust it. And that trust has nothing to do with intelligence. And it sometimes has nothing to do with preparation. There are a lot of, there are a lot of okay actors who prepare, 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 but in that moment, they don't trust themselves to be able to let go and let the things that they've worked on shine through. It just, it's just, it's a different animal. This is important to lay out for you guys when discussing any draft class, but this is especially true for 2022's prospects. You know, based on what little I know outside of my own work, because most of you know, I, I try to do most of my work first and then kind of get a pulse on what's going on out in the public sphere. From what I know, what little I know thus far, 
there doesn't seem to be a strong consensus on who the top quarterback is. You know, it appears the draft media's tabs on the NFL, if they're correct, you know, Kenny Pickett, Matt Corral, Sam Howell, and Malik Willis, and Desmond Ritter could all go in the first two to three rounds. And at least two to three of those guys I mentioned could be day one options. And if the medicals are good, you could probably bet that Carson Strong's going to be in that group, if not high up in that group. Now, if the medicals are mixed for Strong, he might be in a tier with guys like Bailey Zappi, um, who I think is an option that a team might fall in love with, who earns a higher pick than some expect. Same with Strong, even if his medicals are mixed. Maybe one team doesn't like him. A couple other teams are okay with the knee. You know? But there's also, in addition to Zappi and Strong, there's also an outside shot that you might see a team take a shine to a guy like Caleb Ellaby or Cole Kelly out of southeastern Louisiana or Dustin Crum. Um, and they end up going early and kind of like sh- uh, maybe a semi-shocking development to some. You know, I imagine if Kellen Mond went as early as he did, you can bet this trio that I just mentioned could also go early. In fact, I would say all of them would be better picks than than Mond, but that's just my own grade and take and opinion on that. You, you might even see if Mond went, guys like Daniel Brown or Chase Garbers out of Cal or Jack Cohn or EJ Perry get a shot. Um, and you know, I might see some late, you know, the late round guys in this class. I'm banking on probably guys like Brock Purdy, Skylar Thompson, Liam Welch, and Derek King. Um, these are four quarterbacks that, to be honest with you, there's a lot about their skills, if not all of their skills, that I like better than one half to two thirds of the players I mentioned total thus far. You know, and King's probably going to get asked to play a different position if he's even drafted. You know, so what do I think about this class? You know, I know that's what a lot of you want to know. And, you know, I'm going to tease you. I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, you're not going to get all the goods from me right now. I mean, part of it is, is that I'm just starting to write the quarterback chapter um, later this morning. By the time this is out, I'm going to be writing about it. I've already, I pretty much finished the last quarterbacks I was going to watch, um, at least until a- after April 1st. I'm not watching anymore, and I'm getting started to write and finish wrapping up the final parts of my analysis. And I'm about 85 to 95% through with that analysis. So while I feel close to done, the reality is is that the rankings part that you probably envision and think find most interesting and want to know the you know the bottom line, that's not close to final yet. And so it probably won't seem that close to finished if I shared where I am with these players right now. Um, that specifically, because it, it, with them being this close together, a lot could change, you know, and a lot will change probably in the next 24 to 36 hours for me. So what I'm going to share is that I think Matt Corral, um, Kenny Pickett, and Carson Strong are all going to remain close enough together in the RSP's grading system that I'm really not going to have much of an argument with anyone who prefers one over the other as their top guy. Okay. I'm not going to argue with them about that. If that's where you think, if you think those guys are the top guys, you know, and you, and you have one over the other, I can weigh the merits of any of those over 
the other depending on where they fit you know right now before we know about fit which is so important and that's why i do the rsp post draft but right now pre-draft based on ability and based on a lot of things that we see on film i'd say matt corral is the best combination of athletic ability arm and that processing execution um that's so important of the three quarterbacks i think he has the best but he's probably going to require a little more time to transition depending on the demands of his landing spot because he's played in a lane kiffin offense where if teams don't tailor the offense more to what he was doing at Ole miss he he may have to you know he's going to have a little bit of a learning curve with the decisions he's going to have to make with the processing of information that he has the demands of the offense okay right now i'd say carson strong is better at two of the three things i mentioned for corral in terms of i would say processing execution and and arm talent um in terms of accuracy but his knee injuries are a question mark now um even even with the knee industry you know in, injury i would say that strong and corral currently grade higher for me than my fourth and fifth ranked quarterbacks from last year who were davis mills and zach wilson in that order you know and both players got grades wilson and mills who were grades that were good enough for them to start year one if needed but i would but the grade reflects it it would be better if they had a uh a longer learning curve before they got on the field, maybe got to sit a while or had some intermittent playing time like Mills did. And he really started to come on at the end and really show that he might be worth them, you know, having some hope in as a, as a potential long-term starter. And Wilson, after he left the field for a bit, seemed to also show a little bit more because of that unintentional intermittent time on and off the field. Now, what about Pickett? You know, I've already done an RSP film room on him with Mark Schofield. You can see my film room with Mark on this. Um, I would say that Pickett's the best blend of Strong and Corral for the first three and a half quarters of the game. And what that means is, you know, he does a lot of things well conceptually, physically, technically in, in, those, in that span of time during a contest. But I really have serious concerns about his ability to execute these 10 factors I mentioned earlier that play up that whole processing execution bond. I think he struggles there in at the late part of games. He displayed it in multiple games. Even when the outcomes of the games were positive for Pitt, the process that, that Pickett shared was shakier than I think many realize. And that's something I show in Mark in the film room with Mark. Now, when it comes down to it, I think these three players are all in a position to elevate their games to the point that they can become quality starters and landing spots going to be a huge driver for that. I think Pickett needs the most surrounding talent for long-term success, but at least for short-term excitement before the defenses adjust and really scout to where his weaknesses are. I think Pickett could be the one who looks the most pro ready for the first eight to 10 games and gets people excited and then you start to wonder if the lusters kind of come off very quickly strong reminds me of philip rivers 
And I think he's capable. I don't think he's as good as Philip Rivers coming out, but I think he's capable of carrying a team with less talent once he, if he gets a starting opportunity and within a couple of years, you know, I think he'll be capable of carrying a team with less per- talent further than you might expect, even though he's, you know, kind of a sloth in terms of pocket movement based on how you compare other quarterbacks these days. I think Corral's going to need the most stable organization that's going to be patient and flexible with him. You know, kind of in the way that the Bills were stable, patient, and flexible with Josh Allen figuring out what he needed so that he could maximize his opportunities as Allen did the due diligence on his own to become a better quarterback as well. If Corral gets a stable organization, I think he could be the best of the three. Now, the interesting part is that, you know, there are a lot of people who like Malik Willis and Desmond Ritter. They're favorites in many in many pockets of the draft world. Not for me. I'm not sold on either one. And counting on, because for me, counting on Willis to go that path of Josh Allen. He's the player I hear the most linked to Josh Allen. Well, if Josh Allen was able to go from being this kind of raw athlete with a big arm, then Willis might have a chance. That's what I keep hearing. You know, that's certainly possible. But based on what I've seen on film, and if I were going to play the odds based on my analytics and research of criteria that I've looked at, you know, hundreds of quarterbacks over these 17 years, the things that Willis doesn't do well are difficult for quarterbacks to develop at a top level. You know, I mean, Allen is the exception that proves the rule. I mean, he was an interception machine. He lacked pocket savvy at Wyoming. Occasionally, you'd see him climb a pocket like Tom Brady and go and make an accurate throw, and you'd be like, wow, that's awesome. But it was like, when I say occasionally, it was one play, I think, out of 10 games. You know, most players who show that kind of skill, who can, you know, continue, who do it well, they probably show that in every game or at least every other game. One out of 10 games? Yeah, man. I mean, seriously. Allen made awful decisions far more often than he exhibited potential to maneuver a pocket or even process accurately. So, you know, he's that exception that proves the rule that seeing just one to two really great moments from a top athlete doesn't remotely guarantee development into an advanced field general. And it's not just, you know, even if Willis has the work ethic, it's more than just work ethic and intelligence, as I've said. It's you got to have that feel. And, and you've got to have that ability to integrate those things. And I just haven't seen enough of Willis's game that shows the promise of him integrating these things that he needs to integrate. You know, they're going to need... He and Ritter are going to need the right coaches, scheme, and surrounding talent. And I just don't think they have that contextual skill 
Howell. What about Howell? A lot of people still are holding out for Sam Howell. And I think, you know, looking at his score, he could still conceivably wind up in the tier with Pickett, Corral, and Strong for me. But from what I can tell you from the grading I've done, unless I've missed something, and it's possible because, again, I'm sharing some of this stuff prematurely with you, and I have a lot of notes and a lot of things that I have to check and double-check. But these 10 factors aren't really as integrated well enough in Howell's game as they are with Pickett Strong and, and Corral for me. Now, Bailey Zappi, on the other hand, man, listen, I think he's closer in that regard, although not really the athlete that Howell is. Um, I'd even say Zappi along with maybe... Maybe not in the same, quite the same tier as Zappi, or at least on the lower end of it. I'd add Liam Welch of Samford and Cole Kelly, who are intriguing. All three are pretty intriguing in different ways. Maybe not for fantasy yet. You know, that's premature. Draft capital is a is a thing with fantasy because it, it doesn't really have to do with talent as much as it is about the bias of how teams, um, you know, regard their players based on draft capital and what type of opportunities they get. But, you know, if Zappi gets the right fit and really maybe to a certain extent with less of a chance, Welch or Kelly, and I don't even know if Welch is even going to be on any draft boards as a draftable player. Um, Zappi could have a better career than any of the players I've even mentioned in these top tiers or at least regarded as these top tiers. Um, I'm not sold on his arm talent. Um, I think all three passers that I mentioned, Zappi, Welch, and Kelly, have something to their games that could surprise in the league. Um, and I even think there's a little bit of a chance for Brock Purdy to have that. But Purdy's kind of a two-steps-forward, three-steps-back kind of guy. He does a couple of great things that you're just like, wow, this guy really gets it. And then he has moments where he undoes what he accomplished with either a slew of bad plays or one really disastrous decision. If he can curtail that, he may not have the, the great arm, but he he could be a gamer for a team. Um, like I said with Welch, he's unlikely to get drafted, but after watching him tonight, his mobility, his touch, his placement and pocket skills are pretty strong. And he's a player that, you know... Head of U.S. scouting for the Montreal Alouettes, Russ Landy, kind of hit me too, and I understand why. I mean, he he told me about, you know, that this was a guy that he was interested in. Um, you know, Kelly, he's improved his game over the course of his career since being a backup at Arkansas um, and now at Southeast Louisiana, uh, Southeastern Louisiana. And, you know, I like his quick feet. I like his feel in the pocket. He's accurate enough. The arm strength isn't top-notch, but I think, you know, in certain offenses where you kind of had offenses like the Sarkeesian offense in Matt, you know, in Atlanta with Matt Ryan or maybe parts of the um, offense that you see with um, Kyle Shanahan, Kelly could, could do some good things. Now, probably the player I don't get who's probably going to be in that tier is Caleb Ellaby out of Western Michigan. Um, I get that he can create with his legs behind the pocket. He's shifty and can make people miss under pressure and by time. 
but he's not really a true running threat. He's not fast. Um, I don't think he's sudden. And when I watch him under pressure, his accuracy, what I charted him, just dips dramatically under pressure. To the degree that if I were a defensive coordinator and facing Caleb Ellaby Ellaby in the pros, I'd pressure him into creating because I'd probably bet and bank on the fact that for every six points Ellaby would earn, my team's going to earn 12 to 18 from his mistakes or his inaccuracies um, because of either you know three and outs or shortened drives or turnovers, you know. I think Ellaby, Ritter, and Willis are guys are well-liked in many circles. And that's certainly one contingent. I think that's the, we can call that the mobility contingent. You know, mobility with upside. Um, where another, I think, is Strong, Zappi, and Kelly, who are all guys where, you know, Kelly shows some mobility. Um, even Liam Welch shows some mobility. But they're more pocket guys. Um and I find that kind of funny that it's kind of a mobile versus pocket thing. And I'm more on the side of the pocket guys this year, even though I've been known for touting mobile guys like Wilson and Mahomes um, and, and Lamar Jackson. Um, but for me, the, the common factor between those three players that I touted in the past and Strong, Zappy and Kelly, even though maybe not to the same degree of talent, is that you have to have those 10 factors integrated in your game. And I'm more optimistic about the pocket guys having those factors integrated and developing into contributors than I am the mobile guys in this class. Um, And that's part of this diversity of quarterback types, I think is what um, makes this class kind of challenging and a fun challenge, is that many of them have similar grades overall but different challenges. And the league is in a place where I think, you know, at least I think many believe it's still trending towards mobility at the position with these spread offenses. And that makes the class a tough one to pin down. But on another hand, as we know, bad teams tend to remain bad due to poor decision-making, often rooted in lackluster processes. And these teams tend to be the late adopters. They tend to be like, well, now let me find a spread. Let me spread the offense and find that spread quarterback instead of just getting a, you know, a you know a guy who's a veteran quarterback who can scramble a little bit but isn't that much of a threat. Think of the Washington Commanders. They they kind of are late adopters, if you ask me. Um, so. I could see how them going, well, let's let's be a late adopter, but then the bubble bursts because, as you could see this past year, the best antidote to these offenses that spread the field is to have defenses that play too high and force offenses to run and have controlled passing. This means they're, you know, the, the trendy offenses may go to heavy alignments, compressed formations, and have pocket quarterbacks. You know, patient passers in the short range of the field could have some more renewed value. I mean, you're always still going to have great mobile guys. I mean, I'm not saying they're going away, but I'm saying that, you know, the idea of just ignoring quality pocket passers 
to the expense of getting a guy who has potential to be a great pat passer, but you're grabbing him because you love the mobility and hoping the, the other skills that don't typically grow or develop will somehow do that. The biggest mistake the NFL makes with quarterback evaluation year after year. Maybe these pocket guys could have some renewed value among the trendier teams or the smarter teams. Because, you, th- you know, the trendier teams might be Carolina and Washington. Um, teams that I think, you know, that have kind of struggled at times. At least in recent years, I'm sorry. I'm kind of tired. It's past my bedtime. I got to get to sleep and got an early morning coming. So I'm going to finish this up fairly soon here. But, um, you know, I could see Washington, Carolina being kind of late to the party. Whereas maybe Pittsburgh and Denver, depending on maybe John Elway and learning his lessons about quarterback evaluation, just because you're a great quarterback doesn't mean you're a great quarterback evaluator. You know, they're two very different skill sets. You know, I think Elway is best when it comes to identifying a finished product and getting him into the into the fold. And I think he should stick to that if he can um, or let other people do the evaluating. Um, but anyway, Pittsburgh and Denver, probably I could see them opting for those technically and conceptually ready players if Elway's learned his lesson. And Pittsburgh does what Pittsburgh typically does, which is, Make pretty good draft picks. Um, maybe not with quarterbacks in recent years, but they were trying to get the bargain caliber player, um, you know, because they still had Roethlisberger in the fold. And it was before Roethlisberger went unbelievably downhill that they had, you know, that they picked up some of the guys they've had right now. Um, you know, to me, what's fun about this class is that despite the lack of marquee talent that's, you know, consensus marquee talent with obvious star power. You know, studying these players, I really see a lot of guys who could conceivably have better careers who are two day two and day three picks than probably the majority of the day one options. Now, the odds of that happening, I understand, is low. You know, it's likely at best only one of these day two or day three guys, you know, transcends their label. And but it just feels like this draft is kind of ripe for it because again that you know that link between processing and execution it seems to me a lot of the players who are rated lower are better at that than a lot of the players who are rated higher and so I think this draft could for quarterbacks could be a little upside down it's kind of fascinating there's a chance for that at least. Um, and the other fun thing about this is that I haven't even mentioned who I think the most talented quarterback is. That's right. I have not mentioned who I think the most talented quarterback is and odds are will likely be my top quarterback, you know, and unless a team makes this guy their surprise day two pick, which we've seen happen in the past with quarterbacks not really on the high on a radar I think this guy is probably going to have a harder path to opportunity you know and you know it's too bad because I'm going to go into detail about this guy at some point obviously in the RSP but I think his talents are a tier above everybody else 
And I was a little surprised by that until I got to study his game. Now, again, you can get the RSP on April 1st at mountwaldman.com to learn who that's going to be. You can pre-order it, too, to make sure that you get it. You know, again, in addition to this little tease, obviously, you know I bring the goods in terms of the depth of analysis, of analysis the transparency of analysis, the track record of analysis. I have my misses, and you can go on probably any message board or, or social media point, and somebody will bring up, you know, guys that I failed on, and that's fine. But, you know, I think I have as many or more receipts as anybody um, in, you know, over the track, over the period of time. And it's not just volume over years either. You know, I'd say in recent periods of time in terms of cautioning people and encouraging people. Um, so with that in mind, what does this mean for fantasy? Well, unless the player I really think is a tier above everyone else and I'm not counting on him to, for this to happen. If he earns a second or third day pick with a real path to playing time this year or next, I'd likely avoid just drafting any quarterback this year that has a dynasty ADP in the first 24 to 30 picks in the rookie draft. I I just I wouldn't want a second round quarterback in in rookie drafts. I'd rather take a shot on a mid to late round option like a Zappy you know, or if Carson Strong falls or, you know, someone maybe super late like, you know, a Cole Kelly or Liam Welch, you know, somebody like that. Then I, then in that way, you know, I can stockpile running back and wide receiver talent, even in two quarterback leagues. I'd rather wait till rounds four to six or later and just really not expect much. You know, because again, the that processing execution link, you know, has some questions um, with a lot of the top players that are going to be drafted earlier, and their draft stock is going to dictate maybe a higher ADP than what is really worth the risk in terms of their development. So that's it this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. I know it's a solo effort, you know, but uh, I hope you enjoyed my thoughts on the position, at least before I officially rank them and write them up for the chapter. Next week, Mark Schofield and I will be back profiling another quarterback at some point. Um, you know, I think it's going to be next week, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be Carson Strong who we're going to profile, who could very well be you know, in the running for top quarterback in a lot of, on a lot of boards. And he's certainly not far away from me. In fact, he'll be, he might be the guy that if he earns an early day pick, I might make the exception and say, yeah, you can, you might want to draft him earlier, you know, once we get to the post-draft phase. Um, but, you know, I'll also be doing similar shows like this for wide receivers and running backs. Um, sometime this month, if I have to have the time, just depends on, you know, the work that I have to do with the RSP and the editing that goes on with that. Um, once again, get your RSP at mountwaldman.com. You can learn more about it at mountwaldmanrsp.com. And just thank you for listening to this podcast for and for being customers of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. At this time of the year, um, I got to share with you, it's kind of a, it's kind of a lonely gig 
you know, um, in a weird, in, in an interesting way. I mean, like I have, I have friends in this industry and colleagues in this industry that I talk to, whether it's fantasy or scouting or real football. Um, but because I insulate my, a lot of what I do and insulate myself from a lot of what other people are doing, um, it's always a strange time for me. It's always kind of a terrifying time to, for me, to be honest with you, because, you know, I know like someone like Sigmund Bloom likes to say, I don't care what other people think. And ultimately I don't. I And that's because I have to, it's my job to have to care about what my process is and doing what I think is um, going to be the right way to go about this and to follow my own compass with it. But it doesn't make it easy. It, it's not easy any year to do this. It's it's. I'm not saying that my work is hard like people who do manual labor or people who have to deal with customers on a regular basis or people in low-paying gigs who have to put up with a lot of crap that is that should earn them a lot more more money than they're getting um or people who make you know life and death decisions or impact the the outcomes of people's lives i don't do anything remotely like that anymore you know i don't manage anybody you know I don't, you know, I don't have that. I'm, I'm just doing my own thing here. But I'm just saying it's, it's interesting because when you look at it, everybody has certain challenges that they have in their work. And for me, it's, it's, it's every year. It's always kind of scary to go to look at something like, oh man, are you kidding me? This guy's my top quarterback. Or this guy everyone likes is going to be, near the bottom of my list you know because you're always thinking when you start to see what other people think you start to think what did i miss what am i doing wrong did i do something wrong you know am i did i not catch something you know did i miss something that i shouldn't have missed with my process or is there something missing with my process you know it's that time of year for me where I'm just like, I have to, you know, I have to go through the process of just reminding myself that this is my own compass um, and that I have to cultivate that and follow that compass. Um, and if I make mistakes and I have to, you know, I just get better at them. And so far that's worked out for me. Obviously I have people listening to me. I have people reading my work, people like it and people benefited from it most importantly. And, you know, and I'm sure I'll fuck up some more. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I'm always hoping to have the best year possible with what I evaluate. So I'm always right now at this point wondering whether this is the worst year I've evaluated ever evaluate in terms of my performance as an evaluator or the best. And as my wife jokes with me, I think she she says you feel that way every year, <laughs> um, so that tells you that I'm um, certainly not following the consensus. I guess um, so. Um, I just kind of wanted to share that tidbit with you, um, you know, just on a personal note in terms of what I go through. You know, Mark and I talk about imposter syndrome, 
syndrome. You know, I guess that's my version of either imposter syndrome or just my own self-critiquing and, um, you know, being critical. I'm probably harder on myself than anybody can be on me. Um, so as a result of that, I just thought if, you know, if you wonder about that, especially if you're younger and getting started in an industry, you know, I knew what, it, what that was like. I, you know, I hope that maybe someone who's a little older and has been doing something in a while that you read and consume and find some value from that you can see that, you know, we all put our pants on the same fucked up way when we stagger out of bed in the morning. Some of us try it differently, but land up flat on our faces most of the time when we try to do that. So, uh, you know, anyway, thanks again for listening to my late late night rambling. I'm going to get some sleep because I think I've got a show with Cecil and Sigmund for the first time in a little while. You guys have a good night or a good day, good weekend, good week, month, whatever it is. Bye.